0: Welcome to Rap Party with Prime Video. In this podcast, we've been bringing together some of the incredible craftspeople behind some of the best films and TV shows to raise a virtual glass and celebrate their work. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and my plus one to this rap party is my nerd in residence, Michael Leader. Hi, Michael.
1: Hi, Rihanna. Can I just hey. say it's been such a pleasure and a privilege to be your nerd in residence for this series.
0: Ditto. <laughs> it's been really lovely to do a podcast with you. It's been really fun. I feel like we've worked in like similar circles over the years mm. and I've known about your reputation. So it's been really brilliant to just have it confirmed what a great nerd you are.
1: Oh, thank you. And likewise, it's been so fun <laughs> talking with you and also having somebody keeping me in check <laughs> before going full bore nerd.
0: We all know it's probably the other way around. <laughs> yeah. So when we set out to make Rap Party is exactly what we were just talking about. We wanted to shine a light on the craftspeople that don't necessarily get the accolades 100% mm. of the time. Do you think that we've done that? Do you think we've achieved our goal?
1: I mean, we've achieved the goal in part, haven't we? Yeah. we can, how far down the rabbit hole we need to go <laughs> to fully achieve it, we'll see. But who have we spoken to? Costume designers, mm. intimacy coordinators. I mean, that
0: I've, is fascinating because that's almost like a whole new... Sub-genre, which is, I think, just going to get bigger and bigger now and become Mm -hmm. more frequently used. Exactly.
1: But then also, even with the old skills and talents and roles, we're still finding out new things. And I think even today's episode, we're going to talk to a a craft that people think they know, Mm -hmm. but maybe we'll have an aspect on it that they don't realise.
0: So we are going to have a chat with an incredible guest This week, and as you say, I think this is going to be really interesting and maybe dispelling some myths, Mm. but also honing in on what makes a really good editor.
1: So, Rihanna, we're talking about editing today. If I had to sum up editing in two emojis, it would be a film strip and some scissors and already we're getting into some of the presumptions about what editors actually do. It's all about cutting, it's all about working with film strips, very few actually work with them anymore but Rihanna, what do you think when we think about the craft of editing in some ways it's a very invisible art but what do we think about?
0: I go really obvious when you say editing to me and I think about really obvious match cuts for example Mm -hmm. so like the really famous one in Urshian Andalou if we're going to go back that far where you see a cloud going across the moon and at the same time he slits a woman eye. It's actually a pig's eye. It's fine. So like that really kind of obvious visual example of editing where it just cuts to something that looks similar. Mm-hmm. And it, obviously Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey with the bone being thrown in the air and then turning into a spaceship. And <laughs> I mean, maybe slightly less iconic, like audible cuts like in Austin Powers uh-huh. where... <laughs> <laughs> when they have, you know, when they have like a an unidentified object flying through the air, and they're like, it looks like a Johnson. Uh-huh, and yes. uh, <laughs> I won't give any more examples. They get ruder and ruder, mm-hmm. but I always think that's a hilariously fun way of showing editing yes, yeah, that true. montage
1: I didn't expect us to go so quickly into Austin Powers territory here <laughs> I, I was fully in, in the mood for match cuts I was going to think about Anne V. Coates incredible iconic historic match cut in Lawrence of Arabia yeah. going from the, the burning match to the huge landscape I was thinking about transitions yes. one of my favourite things I think any Star Wars fan will love a good transition be it a radial clock wipe yep. be it a, a diagonal wipe maybe even a star wipe if you're feeling quite disco era so
0: basically if you're a fan of PowerPoint you'll love all those transitions are
1: we saying that George Lucas He's 100%, everything, everything he did basically could be done on PowerPoint 100 percent. but
0: also like really really I love really really quick editing so like whiplash where it's like cut in time with the music and mm-hmm. it's like there's a rhythm to it that was an art in itself that was an incredible film for everything but the editing especially mm-hmm. there is definitely a spectrum isn't there and so a director like Adam McKay does something like the big short Mm -hmm. and he gets Hank Corwin to edit it and it's all about cutaways and it's really flashy editing it's very almost at the forefront of the film it doesn't ever let you forget that this is an edit point Mm -hmm. and I think there is something to be said for films on the complete other end of the spectrum where you just don't see the joins, mm-hmm. and I love that sort of editing. Although it's much, it's almost harder to give those examples because they're not flashy.
1: Let's focus on George Miller, mm-hmm. Mad Max, yeah. uh, visionary. When he made Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior in 1982, that film has 120 cuts. Mm-hmm. Not that many, really, but pretty standard. It. Does that sound like a lot to you?
0: I don't know. I've never counted.
1: So, point of comparison: whether that feels like a lot or not. Flash forward 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mad Max Fury Road has two thousand seven hundred cuts.
0: Oh my god.
1: So that's just how our eyes have evolved. That's insane. So that's I
0: mean, that's a great comparison. Like as you say, same director, same franchise and same energy. Mm -hmm. I'd love to go back and compare those two
1: with a stopwatch with a little
0: stopwatch I'm not doing that that's ridiculous
1: but for our conversation today we're going to be talking to an editor who has developed relationships as a storyteller in collaboration with a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and that's another way to think about editors as the person who is given all of this footage that is shot on set and then puts it into a shape in collaboration with a filmmaker and we can think of some great collaborations through film history the first one that comes to mind for me is Thelma Schoonmaker who has edited every Martin Scorsese film since Raging Bull she is phenomenal. Mm -hmm, Exactly and she may have some amazing grace notes within these films Mm -hmm. but it's the collaboration, the fact that she is so trusted by Martin Scorsese and she brings her own voice and vision to that. Likewise I remember at the time when Django Unchained came out that um, everyone was thinking about how the film was a little bit different to the Quentin Tarantino films we'd seen before Mm -hmm. that. And that was because it was his first film without his long-trusted editor, Sally Menke, who unfortunately very sadly passed away. Mm. So she'd edited every single one of his films from Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, The Kill Bills, and so therefore had an input into something we associate with that very poppy Quentin Tarantino style.
0: And we think of it as very Tarantino, but as you say, that collaboration often just is sort of unspoken, isn't it? I tell you what though, there's a name that always comes up with editing and I think it would be quite nice to just hear a little bit more about him. Walter Murch, he's a pretty big deal, right, in editing?
1: He's a huge deal. Well, and not just in film editing. He started out as an innovative, revolutionary sound editor and designer as Mm -hmm. well. So he has a huge career. The whole new Hollywood era would not sound or look the same without him. But in terms of when he turned to film editing, he edited yeah, the Conversation, Apocalypse Now, lots of films with Francis Ford Coppola. But he has an amazing trivia tidbit about him, is that he's had Oscar nominations on several different editing paradigms and platforms. He's edited on the old flatbed, you know, actual cutting up and sticking together the film strips. He is the spokesperson for the art. He's written books. He's always the person wheeled out for a documentary.
0: Amazing. So we are speaking today to the phenomenal and very charismatic Joe Beanie.
1: Indeed. He is somebody who's definitely created this career where he has worked in close collaboration with certain filmmakers. And as we'll find out, he has a real creative relationship with these films. Mm -hmm. One of those filmmakers, and I will admit this was a... uh, one of my real Nerd in Residence highlights for the podcast so far. He's worked for 20-odd years with Werner Herzog, (gasps) the iconic filmmaker, almost self-parodic, a man who has almost exceeded the films in terms of reputation, in terms of everyone can do a Werner Herzog impression, can't they? (laughs) But the interesting thing with Joe Beanie is that he started at this period where Werner Herzog was becoming a little bit more famous, at least successful Mm awards-wise, as a documentary filmmaker in the late 90s into the 2000s. And he edited documentaries for Werner and moved over into his fiction films so he has this two extremes at the same time at a time as well where Werner Herzog's fictional films were always taking on elements of being quite authentic Mm -hmm. and his documentaries were becoming quite larger than life Mm -hmm. so the very first film they worked on together was a film called Little Dieter Needs to Fly which is a profile of a Vietnam prisoner of war but then 10 years later Joe Beanie also edits the fictional, big, glossy feature adapted from that story, which is called Rescue Dawn, starred Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. So he's done both versions. But also in terms of the big hitters of this Period. There was the Oscar-winning documentary Grizzly Man.
0: Yes, that's what something that I'm really excited to talk about. I mean, that what had such an impact, I think, on documentary, and it's incredibly tragic, but also fascinating. And for me, it's more about just those thousands of hours of footage that had to get boiled down to a film that had a narrative and then this inevitable outcome. So I think Joe's take on working on that will be fascinating.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, that's an amazing film. A great tragic irony at the heart of it. And Herzog's approach to the material is very sensitive, but also does lean into that Irony,
0: mm-hmm. But also he's worked with some amazing female directors like mm. my heroes, like Andrea Arnold, oh, yeah. for example. So he worked on American Honey, which is about the then newcomer Sasha Lane playing Star, who's this girl who gets picked up by a group of misfits who travel across the country selling magazine subscriptions. I mean, I I do find the way that Andrea Arnold shoots fascinating because it just feels like she amasses again like loads and loads and loads of footage without... I can't really imagine there being a a narrative in there somehow, but a narrative always does come out. And it was the same with Fish Tank, starring Michael Fassbender, where there is this dark, insidious thing going on somewhere and it's almost up to the viewer to find it amongst all of the conversations and the overlapping dialogue and these incredible, beautiful landscapes. And it's so natural and very, like, sort of social realism and which is, I guess, quite similar to in Ramses. Mm-hmm. work as well on You Were Never Really Here although I'm very different kind of style but
1: Yeah if we could characterise American Honey as I imagine almost like a documentary in the sense he got so many hours of footage yeah. from this road trip with yes. all these characters yeah. they were shooting on the fly it feels like Lynn Ramsey's work is a bit more lean and mean mm-hmm. You Never Really Here is adapted from a novella and feels like a novella of a movie yeah. under 90 minutes long short, sharp and to the point mm-hmm. but yes it is you still get this sense of a whole fully fleshed out world yeah. from that and a little bit a different editing job, I imagine. Oh,
0: massively, yeah. I'm so intrigued to find out about Joe Beanie's work. He's really sort of run the spectrum of editing. So it is time to welcome to the rap party, Joe Beanie.
1: So, Joe, thank you so much for talking with us today. I suppose first question, the old cliché, is that you make
2: a film three times on the page, on set, and in the edit. Is that true? I mean, it depends on a film. I worked on, for example, a film with Alexander Payne. And Alexander Payne is very much about writing. And I think that the editing process was a refinement process, but it certainly wasn't a reinventing process. Most of the films I've worked on in some way have been more... And so they fall into that category. For example, Andrea Arnold certainly feels that way. She said that to me more than once. In fact, somehow, I know that's a bit of a cliche, but she's the first one I ever heard it said to. And it seems somehow profound. But that particular film, American Honey, was very much that. It had a great script, but Andrea and I decided, when I'd never met her before, and she was incredibly trusting. And we decided that how we would try to do it is that I would not read the script. And the reason was, I think the reason she was interested in me in the first place was because of the documentary. It's most of what I've done. I've done a lot of fiction more lately, but my background's unscripted documentary. So she liked that. And her concept in American Honey was there's 12 characters, I believe, and she wanted them all, you know, not to be background. She wanted each one of them to feel like the tip of the iceberg, you know, that there was a whole life that we were only just seeing a bit of. So I just sort of thought, well, if I didn't know who the main characters were, or I don't know what's going to happen, I would pay that attention to each one of them. And that was cool. It it worked out really well. And then it was very interesting. We worked in little sort of increments where she would sit with me. We would look at the rushes, and then I would work on a period, and then she would come back, and we'd look at more rushes. And for months, three months, I didn't know what was going to (laughs) happen. And my assistant had read the script and I'd kind of go, you know, to him and somebody, are they going to be okay? (laughs) You know, (laughs) So it was quite funny.
0: But that huge cast, like you say, at least 12 people vying for attention. How does that work when you're trying to edit together when the style of American Honey is they're all speaking over each other all the time? Yeah,
2: totally. So
0: how are you trying to get those bits of conversation out that makes sense, tease that out?
2: Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's very much to do with the way it's shot. Robbie Ryan is a DP, and he's absolutely brilliant. And the vibe that I had, kind of the working methodology for me, was that Andrea had created this full world. To me, it was completely believable. It was scripted. There were these amazing written, scripted scenes in that film that are so funny or whatever. But she's so brilliant in varying that kind of thing with stuff that's just completely off the cuff. So to me, I felt like she created this whole world and Robbie kind of shot a documentary in it. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea, but that was how it felt to me. And so my job was just to, as often the case in those kinds of films, which are mostly documentaries, is just to interpret that language. And that's a lot of what an editor is. Like my vibe has always been that... We are the people who speak the language the best, because we work with the language every day. And one of the earliest jobs I had in television, I did a television job here, and it was about DNA. I was like, I don't know anything about (laughs) DNA. Like, I literally don't (laughs) know. Which job was that? It was a TV five-part about DNA, and it told the, you know, Watson and Crick thing. And I quickly realized, I was a young editor at the time, that my job is, I'm an interpreter. I am interpreting this into a different language a language of images and that's you know to me what we're talking about it's a language of images which doesn't just mean pictorial images it's sound images or you might even say emotional images which these fantastic directors that I've worked with are so great at.
1: I love how you're characterizing this as a voyage of discovery, the editing process. American Honey and You Neverly really Hear, Here, even though they're very different types of film, different lengths of film, they both do have these complete worlds that are there visually. Sure. Can you tell us about how, what you got from Lynn Ramsey when editing You Neverly really
2: Here? Yeah, well, Lynn I've done two films with, and the first one was We Need to Talk About Kevin and I was, you know, stunned. I felt like I finally found a filmmaker who I really connected to just primally, I guess, that for her images first, again, not necessarily pictorial images. You know, Lynn is somebody who writes sound cues into her scripts and music, you know, specifically, which a lot of people do now. They write music cues into the scripts, but she writes sound cues, which is amazing. Those cues don't necessarily end up in the film, but it just tells you that that's the thinking. And that is her thinking. So the first film is partly me getting to know her and how it worked. But the second film flowed much easier. One of the jobs is is always just how can you tell this visually? How can you tell this not using words? And so with Lynn, a lot of what you're doing just practically is cutting words out. And so the scenes that were the most difficult to edit in both of those films were probably the scenes that you would think were the most straightforward. It was just dialogue scenes.
0: Right.
2: When Kevin meets his mom in the prison, or the end scene in You Were Never Really Here where they're in the diner. There's like five lines of dialogue. I cut that like 600 times. I mean, because we're just trying to get it down to just the essence. And what I admire about Lynn more than anything else is She's a genius at knowing what you don't need. The director has to bring that, because an editor, you would think it'd be the one who's cutting it down. But I have so much respect for what's going on that sometimes it takes them to say, no, you know, we can lose that. We can lose that. And a lot of times it'd be like, that's the essential (laughs) thing in the scene. And she's got such a great vibe for that.
1: And that's absolutely there with and Averly here, which is one of just the most sort of compact, stripped down, sub-90 minute films that's just every minute is so full of invention and so full of power. And so it's interesting you say that the editor isn't the person cutting stuff out and leaving on the cutting room floor. This is a very facetious question, perhaps, but do you prefer a, a tighter runtime or a longer
2: runtime? <laughs> it's difficult You know, I mean, You Were Never Really Here was great because when I read the script, I was like, this is what the film I've always wanted to make. It's like a B film noir, Mm -hmm. which is like a whole genre, you know, going back to the 40s of this thing. The B feature that played in is short. It's 90 minutes or less. Some of them are like 78 minutes. And it's a certain kind of thing. And I I just thought that was perfect. So don't have the wrong impression that that was some kind of long thing that we cut down. It wasn't. It was designed to be that. Well, what we did was we refined it. And it was beautiful because, for example, the way that film worked was, okay, you know, here's the scripted scenes. I, I get that. And I'm looking at the rushes. I can see how that's going to come together. But that's not what's interesting. And that's not what's interesting to Lynn. What's interesting to Lynn is what can we find in the material that wasn't even intended. Mm. And so toward the end, there's a scene where Joaquin is in a train going to Albany to confront the bad guy and it was just this footage of him on a train and they just beautifully shot footage with the window rattling and him in these various incredible mental states which he does so well and i just went right to that i just thought okay i'm gonna do that i'm gonna cut that scene and this is what i usually do just cut like some crazy long thing that's not necessarily this is going to be the scene but it's just an exploration And it's like, show that to her, start working around that. And then kind of knowing, okay, that's where I'm going. That's where I want to get to, that moment. And then unwinding things from there. So all of that wasn't in the script. I mean, yeah, there's this scene and he takes a train to Albany. (laughs) But, you know, to me, that was the whole thing. And and not every filmmaker leaves room for that.
1: And that's completely there and you never really hear so much of it is Joaquin's face, Mm -hmm. so much of it is existing within his psychology. You say that the hardest scenes maybe to cut are the dialogue scenes in a film like that. Mm-hmm. One of the standout scenes for many of us who watch and love that film was the CCTV camera scene mm-hmm. where he finally goes into the brothel and it's done in this beautifully, slightly non-chronological way with the cuts overlapping with one of the slightly out of time. How did that scene come about?
2: It was a crazy shoot because they shot it in an incredibly short period of time and I think at one point we had a discussion that they might shoot it that way. But then it's just like the rushes came one day. And I was totally surprised to find that they had shot it, the whole thing that way. So, oh, wow, this is okay. This is going to be this set piece. It's all about editing. Man, this is awesome. My assistant and I tried the obvious thing, which was what is the absolute chronology through these cameras of him walking up the stairs and doing these things, which you could do. You could actually track it that way. And that was kind of amazing, but it didn't quite work. And so then we just started messing around with it. And the thing for us very early on, we settled on that song. It's playing in the speakers in the brothel. It does two things. It's a, it's a spatial thing mm-hmm. because you know he's getting closer to where it's coming from, which is up the stairs. And so you hear when it cuts back and forth that he's lower. And it's also a temporal thing. Mm-hmm. So if you break the song, you're breaking time. And we do that a couple of times in the movie. And that's actually an example of something that Lynn wrote reading the script. Just that she wrote that crazy thing like, there's a jump cut in the music. <laughs> and, and so it's like, okay, well, like, well, what else can we do with that? Well, what if it's repeated? What does that mean? So these were kind of the ingredients. And it's very funny. It's this scene that everybody talks about in that mm. film. And it's a great scene, but I, to be honest, I never felt I got it exactly right. Why? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I tried it a lot of different ways and I just always felt like it could have been better. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I still feel that.
0: I don't Uh, think so. (laughs) I don't. I really (laughs) don't. (laughs) When do you come on board then as an editor? Do you ever get to be on set and seeing them doing. You do? Mm
2: -hmm. Depends on the film. Kevin, I was on set most of the shoot.
0: Is that quite normal?
2: It depends. I mean, there's a good side and a bad side to that. Right. So, Kevin, my job was to be there to look at the rushes mm-hmm. and say, it's all going well, or I, I think this isn't working. So, there were some performance issues with some of the minor characters. And so, every day I would look at the rushes, I would come out to the set, I would give a little report, I would watch a bit. Somebody might ask my opinion about whatever. But at some point, it's kind of like, okay, Joe, <laughs> you know, we've had enough of you now. <laughs> so, the next film with Lynn I came to this out I think one day or something, and that was cool just to kind of see what was going on i you know meet the cast and all that Werner's films the fiction films I usually would be there for the whole thing. I'd actually be editing while he was shooting, like mm-hmm. the bad lieutenant was one I was cutting while we were there. that was fun.
1: Badly Tennant feels like a film that was just so organic, almost felt like it's improvising before your eyes. You're bringing in elements like what's the lizard that's in the corner of one shot that yeah, Nicholas Cage yeah. reports on. That seems like something that just comes out of the ether.
2: It's completely true what you just said. It was like literally him saying, "It'd be great if we had an iguana. Can you get an iguana?" <laughs> I was like, let's not shoot the scene today, get an iguana, we'll shoot it tomorrow. They get an iguana, we shoot it the next day. And it's like, there it is, it exists. And then it's like, what else can we do with the iguana? <laughs> Maybe there's a scene later where we could use an iguana. And that's totally what it came out of.
1: Does that typify working with Werner then? That you don't know what you're going to get from can day
0: to doesn't typify <laughs> working with Werner. <Verna's laughs> like?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, funny question. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't say it is. You know, every shoot is different. That one just is very much how you described it. And we were just lucky. It was fun. It was the funnest time I ever had. Because of that, I just come up with weird ideas and do them. So it was really cool. But usually, no. Usually there's a lot of stress. You would never really hear it was very stressful because we had to rework things while it was being shot. We had no time. There were certain crazy things with the cast. And we ended up changing characters in the film, mostly shoots are stressful.
0: What happens if you do fundamentally disagree with a director's choice? Do you make that very apparent or do you think not my job I'm just going to sit here silently?
2: I worked for 27 films with Werner Herzog and Werner Herzog is you know, obviously a very decisive individual and with each director you learn how to work with them and you learn how to work them which is to Get your ideas across. Hopefully most of it you're agreeing on, but there are things that you don't see eye to eye on. Mm-hmm. And so you have various techniques everyone does for how they try to put that across. But at the end of the day, you respect the hierarchy of filmmaking. And so this is one of the things about being an editor, like a young editor, you have to come to terms with. To me, it's not a job. It's absolutely a life. And it's a creative life. It's, it's an art form to me. I never call myself an editor. I'm a filmmaker. my co-filmmaker in my mind. But that doesn't mean I don't respect the director as the director. It's they're the reason you're here. They're the reason you're working with Werner or Lynn or Andrea. That's why you're making this film, because of them, because of the stuff they've done in the past and what they've brought to this thing. It's their vision. So you have to respect that. I'm there to support them. And as long as I understand why they want to do something, even if I disagree... I can usually swallow it, and then I just try to see it from their perspective. And it's also quite interesting that the process itself is what I remember more than the film. And I don't watch the films much. There's only a couple I would be willing to watch right now. Like? Grizzly Man. Yeah? I love Grizzly Man, because I really love him, Timothy Treadwell. And to this day, my wife and I, who worked on the film, we always quote that film, like, around our house. <laughs> <laughs> just things that Twinkie said. And, you know, that was a long time ago. And it's still just so alive for me. And I know if I watched it right now, I'd laugh and I'd enjoy it. But most films I just, I'm not, mm, yeah, you know. <laughs> are you proud of that film? Yeah, I'm proud of it. You want to watch it again? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, with something like Grizzly Man, there are some really, you know, pretty devastating things in that film when you're working on that when you have all of that footage i mean ultimately films are for entertainment how does that sort of impact on your mental health if you're having to Mm. work with this footage again and again and again Mm -hmm. that's That's pretty devastating
2: that's a really important question well i've worked on a lot of dark films i mean kevin was an incredibly dark film and it went through a period where in a row i did kevin i did a film called Into the Abyss, which I did with Mm -hmm. Werner Herzog. And it's an incredible film that is about the death row. Did a whole series on death row. It was like a year of just really intense stuff. But weirdly, I'm an aesthetic person. I get involved in the aesthetics of it. So I'll just immediately latch on to what's the best way to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, I kind of am distancing myself from the emotional thing of it. It's kind of a horrible thing to say in a way because it's what leads to propaganda. It leads to bad things. If you divorce yourself from the message and just make it be about the medium of how the message is delivered, it's scary. But there's always some time where it does hit you. That could be when you're watching the finished film or actually really where it hits you, where it should hit you, is when you're watching the rushes. Mm. You should have a primal first-time experience. You feel the emotion, whether it's, sadness, anger, horror, you need to have that. And then you need to say, okay, I had that experience. I need to make the audience have that experience. So I have to structure this. So yeah, it's hard. And you you really have to remember that. And you have to remember to get away from the things, which is very difficult to do when you're in the middle of it.
0: Mm.
1: And as the co-filmmaker, the editor, the interpreter of the footage into the story, when it's in documentary form in particular, I know that Herzog is somebody who plays with documentary form as well as making very serious documentaries on serious subjects. Where does your responsibility lie? Is it to the truth, to the authenticity, to the story, yeah. to the subjects, or to the audience?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, when you say where does your responsibility lie, the your is the thing, mm-hmm. because the your is the filmmakers. And I, I understand that. And with each filmmaker, each director, I have to have an understanding of where they're coming from with that but in a weird way i'm the editor and so that's not my problem ultimately so for example truth in a documentary fabrication that's big Werner's film things that are fabricated he made them up to make the thing more cinematic to make it resonate with an audience but did that really literally happen no but this is a very fine line it's very important to say he would never change facts. You'd be stupid to do that because you will be eviscerated at the end for doing that. But he would change the way that that story was told. So i guess just give an example. The first film I did with him is this film called Little Dieter Needs to Fly, It's an amazing film. And in the beginning of the film, when you first meet the character, he has this tendency to open and close doors. He gets out of his car and he opens and closes the door three times. And then he goes to his house and he opens the door three times. And then he says... Well, I guess this looks kind of funny to you, but I do this because I was a prisoner of war and I was trapped in, a, you know, and it's very important to me to be able to open and close doors. So when you see my house, you'll see everything's open and all of this. And it's like a really interesting way to meet this guy. And Werner was very proud of saying, Well, I told him to do that. <laughs> and so it's okay, well, how do you feel about that? But here's to me, was the topper. Was that several years later? I met somebody who lived near Dieter. And one day he picked him up or something on the road, but <laughs> he closed the door, okay. according to Walter Murch. Okay. So then you're in this completely bizarre reality, which is like, did Werner make up the story about making up the story mm-hmm. or whatever? But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. In the same way, it doesn't really matter to me as the editor. This touches on your question. I don't really care about Dieter the person. I only care about Dieter the character in the film, and so my strongest thing is that a character in a documentary is a percentage of the real person and a percentage of the filmmakers, and they kind of meet in the middle. So people always ask you afterwards, ask me like, "So, what was Dieter like?" Or how do you know? I don't know. (laughs) He's like what I can tell you about him is what you see in the film. I made that. Is it true? I think it is, feels that way to me. Not every documentary f- filmmaker feels that way, but I think it's the only real truthful way to think of it. And yeah, not to get too nerdy about
1: Herzog, but that's what I love about Little Dieter, is that it is one of those most playful documentaries, profiles, the line that sticks in my head is, oh, this is a bit too close to the truth, where he's actually being led through the yep. jungle. And I wonder whether the responsibility to the actual truth behind it comes more into play when the dramatization is made a decade later. Excellent point. Rescue Dawn. Yep. And it, it, that's the funny thing with Herzog, isn't it? His fiction films may be more truthful than some of his documentaries are.
2: Yep. Well, that was an interesting thing in that, those two films, the same story told two different ways. And Rescue Dawn is mu- a, a much less inventive film, But what's incredible about it is the documentary elements, meaning Christian Bale is actually being dragged behind a yak. Like, that is really happening. All that stuff is real, and you get a sense of all of that in a way you didn't in the documentary. When I first saw the the first cut of that scene that you just mentioned, which is basically Dieter is talking about how, as a prisoner of war, they used to run him through the jungles and what that was like. He'd have his arm tied behind his back and he'd be running through the jungle. And Werner actually has him do that to him. And so your mind is working and like, whoa, this is what it must have been like for him. But this guy is actually having to, this happened to him. Boy, the filmmaker must be a sadist. You know, <laughs> yeah. all these things go through your mind. And it's really much more interesting and experiential mm-hmm. than just somebody telling a story.
0: Mm-hmm. So on a really basic level. Do you prefer now working in documentary or fiction films
2: yeah i don't differentiate the next question you may be asking is what is the difference or i presume
0: it's just a lot more material in documentary
2: yeah, <laughs> well that's generally true but i edited american honey and american <laughs> yes. honey had more footage than probably any film i suppose that i've worked on you know Werner shoots very economically and so something like 40 hours of rushes to do a 2 hour film mm-hmm. that's pretty good you know so American Honey was at least twice that if not three times that and I've worked on other doc I mean Grizzly Man obviously had hundreds mm-hmm. 100 hours of Timothy's footage but in terms of the aesthetic or what the job is I don't differentiate I see it as performance it's still performance whether it's Joaquin Phoenix or it's somebody telling the story of their life I'm looking at the same thing. Do I believe this person? Mm -hmm. If I don't believe them, that could be really interesting. I'm looking for the emotion that I feel when I'm watching it and I'm looking for structure. That's mostly what I do. So my background as a as a dramatist was unscripted documentary. Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Those documentaries. They were made in the edit room. There was no real plan for how it was gonna what order things were gonna be in. Werner would say, you know, I know this is gonna be the beginning or I have a great idea for the end, but mostly it's structured there. And so, you know, that's the kinds of films I like. Mm. Editing documentaries is really, really difficult. And you know, the cool thing about a narrative for the most part is you have a script and that script, even if you go away from it, is the thing that takes you about three months or four months of editing to get to in a documentary, which is a first idea about what the story is. At that point, you're burnt out as an editor. You can't see anything anymore because you've been so close to it. So that's the thing I learned over time is I used to just be like I wanted to do everything myself. I wanted to make sure I saw all the footage and all that kind of stuff. And then I realized, actually, my greatest asset is if I can stay fresh. Mm-hmm. And, I, and there's a whole thing like during the course of editing a film, say, American Honey, there might be three times in the entire experience where you, you watch the whole film and you could see it. You could say, oh, I, I know what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Because you just so happen to be in the right state of mind, you weren't too burned out or whatever. Most of the time, you're forced to do a screening because the producer wants to see it or whomever. And then, you know, you're kind of staring at it. You've been working until <laughs> 2 in the morning to get there. And for the first 20 minutes, you're not thinking about anything. And then afterwards, it's kind of like, so, what did you think? And if I was being truthful, I was like, I don't, I'm not thinking anything. It was like staring at a white wall. I have absolutely no idea. But then there are these screenings where you do see it. And that's the thing you have to preserve Mm -hmm. mentally.
0: And I have to ask, where are you on the spectrum of editing needs to be absolutely invisible? Or Mm -hmm. editing is almost like Hank Corwin style, flashy, Mm -hmm. in your face, very obvious. I feel like they're... Mm -hmm. Every editor sits somewhere on there, where are you? No, that's
2: true. Well, it's probably true of every facet of the business. There's sort of two ways. Where do you feel as you ask it, which is your style as an editor, and and then where do you feel as an artist Mm -hmm. is the second question. So the first question is every film dictates its own answer to that, and it's called The Invisible Art, Mm -hmm. and it's very true. I mean... Nobody can gauge the editing of a film. That's the absurdity of giving Oscars or whatever to editing, because nobody has the slightest idea how this film was edited. Editing, first off, is usually between at least two people, a director and an editor, but not always. Sometimes it can be three people, sometimes it can only be the editor or it can only be the director who's driving every single thing, so you don't know that. You don't know how much of things were scripted, so if you don't know that, you don't know how the film was edited, and I don't know that about any film. So it's like me as an editor, I hardly know the style of my peers or my favorite editors from the past. I am still kind of fall into that horrible trap of auteur cinema, which is, of course, nonsense, but we do that it's a simple story. It's easy to say it's one person who made that. I can get that. Werner Herzog made those films. I know what he's like. He's that crazy guy who's on TV, and he's doing this, and he's awesome. So that's all coming from him. And obviously there's a massive part of that that's true. But also, and this gets into the second part of that question, those films were made by a group of people, and particularly the people, the camera person in his films, the editor, costume designer... All those people are vital. Mm. And all of those people have to come to terms with what kind of notoriety they get. And are you humble enough to accept that you don't get the notoriety? There's a a moment when you edit a film, you've given everything and and you've lived it for X amount of months. And there's a point where you give it to somebody else and they go out and they present it to the world. Mm. You know, it was difficult for me to accept that. And then I sort of realized, as an older editor, I think what I learned is I have to have something that's just my own. Mm. I have to also be doing something as an artist that's just mine. But I don't know if I answered your question. I don't have a, a take on, like, what is flashy editing. Seriously, do you think the editing in You Would Ever Really Here is flashy?
0: No, I think the the only time that you were talking about the CCTV scene mm-hmm. is the one where you notice mm-hmm. because of the jumps because you're supposed to notice because it's yeah. being told in a slightly different way to the rest of the film.
1: Mm-hmm. And I suppose the other part where the film shows its hand is where the door is opened with the camera still mounted on it and it swings back and forth. That's not part of editing of course, that's a different choice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to keep that in and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it engages you in a different way, doesn't it, than a film that satisfies all the continuities.
2: And What's interesting, just the CCTV scene in that film, the moment of the whole thing to me was when it, the end of it and it goes to, suddenly now it's in color, Mm -hmm. and you see her for the first time. And so what I just thought was so weird, and sometimes you never have the aesthetic conversation with the director somehow. Werner and I never, ever had aesthetic conversations. When I saw that footage, it was like, okay, we're with this guy, this whole film, and then comes this thing that suddenly from, what is this, it's like this crazy point of view, Literally, I kind of overthought it. Like, okay, so there's a CCTV operator person Mm. (laughs) who's looking at it like God or whatever. And I passed through that porthole. And then I'm in the one, well, this is how we did it. I'm in her mind. So there's been like a convergence of him and her. Mm. And she's in this spaced out and she's hearing different things. And it was like, oh, wow, they've converged in some weird way. And then it, it snaps out of that
1: you talked so well about the craft of editing, the way that you find the artistry within it. it Since we're shining a light on all these crafts in this series, I'd love to know, how did you catch the bug for editing? And were you looking at other editors that inspired you or filmmakers that inspired you to say, editing is the thing for me?
2: I didn't have any plan to be an editor. I started to be a filmmaker. I went to NYU in the 1980s, and I want to be a filmmaker but I just happened to be pretty good at editing. And then, and this is often the stories. It's, li- it's not about I made this choice to do this thing. Actually, it was for me, it was technology. <laughs> I'm from San Francisco. After I lived in New York for a long time, I came back and I had friends who were software designers. And they were designing Pro Tools, partly. And part of what Pro Tools was doing at that time is they had, hey, we have this thing called Avid. Would you like to check it out? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll check it out. I was like, Wow. This is amazing. And then it was like, oh, you can get work doing that, whether you're any good at all. So for the first, I mean, actually, even all the way up until I met Murner, first two or three films I did with him, to be perfectly honest, were simply because I could operate a machine at the rate that he could think. (laughs) (laughs) And he he liked that. (laughs) So he called me back, and it was only like seven films into it or something where he ever started to listen to anything that I had to say, you know, aesthetically.
1: I find it fascinating. So you came of age when Avid is coming in. Have you only edited digitally on computers?
2: You know, I've done it all. I mean, I started in film. I did film editing. So how
1: much does technology
2: define the editing process? If you look at the history of cinema, most of the greatest films ever made, 90% we're cut with a pair of scissors. Mm. And that's just true. So it's not about technology. And, and technology is a trap, because especially Avid and stuff where you can redo things a thousand times, you have to learn a way of thinking, which you think through. In those days, it was like, it's so difficult to actually physically make a splice, it's difficult in the sense of what you can do now, that you have to think it through before you do it. So like, particularly working with 16-millimeter films, which were the first things I edited, you know, you'd make a splice and then it's like, actually, that cut probably would be better if it had like three more frames. But that would mean I'd have to undo that and put those three frames. In. It's good <laughs> enough. <laughs> you know. So technology certainly changed that. There's no good old days because I could never imagine going back. And And that is actually particularly true for me with sound. Mm. Because when I started, you had to imagine the entire soundtrack you could only play a maximum of two pieces of sound at the same time with sync picture. picture. Right. One of them would be the dialogue, and the other one probably would be the music. And then you would do other stuff where you'd put a, the soundtracks on there, and you'd have to imagine it. Mm. And there was this incredible moment where you went to the dub stage to do the mix of the film, and it would be the first time you heard the whole thing, this thing you'd imagine, And now it's just like you just start putting stuff in, and no one's ever going to tell me that that's not better. It just is. <laughs> not just easier, but also to make something really work from the beginning.
0: We haven't really yeah. talked about your relationship with the composing department. How closely do you work with a composer?
2: Yeah. I've had some great luck to work with some amazing people, both in sound and music. It just like mm-hmm. any one of Lynn's films. But the last film... You Were Never Really Here. Her longest collaborator, the person she'd done the most with, is Paul Davis, and Paul is a sound designer. And he worked there from film school on. And so he's her, you know, I love that fact that that's her fundamental person. Mm. So he gets involved early on. He has done some things where he would do a storyboard of sound in a film. I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> and the more you can give me Up front, or as we're going along, the more it's going to get in there and it's going to be fundamental to what we're doing. So I try to look at that, like that his sound and the music is rushes of the same importance as anything that was shot. If you use them right, they're going to be as powerful. So the same thing on that film, working with Johnny Greenwood was that, that he would give his stuff, you know, kind of early on. And the way it felt to me, it's like, Johnny is this force. And so you kind of intersect with him a little bit when you're making your film. It's like, well, what are you doing right now? It's like, I'm doing this. Does any of this work into your conception? That could be completely not how it is, but that's how it felt <laughs> to me. And I really liked that. And it was like, so he'd give us stuff and you kind of just start putting it in. And it's like, oh, wow, this is cool. This Just this moment, because obviously it's not structured to work with a thing. I'd cut it in a weird way just to get that one moment. Then it would go back to him, and it would develop into the the things that you see, and that's how you should be working with sound too. That's what's been successful to me: have it there early and work with it on the same levels you work with everything
0: else. Who would you point to as being an editor to really look at in terms of their visuals?
2: Juliet Wellsling. and she's a French editor, and she's amazing. I just really appreciate what she does. Diving Bell and the Butterfly was one. A Prophet is another one of my favorite films. Um, But the the, the weirdest thing, I mean, I talk about this a lot. I don't really know editors that much. Right. I mean, I tell about films that I thought were well edited or whatever. But even like I said, I don't know what the process was. But the only way you can judge it is you start looking, oh, they did these films. Well, that Wow. And she's, you know, certainly one of those.
1: We are inviting all of these craftspeople to our big fictional imaginary rap party. Because it's fictional, we can invite whoever we want. And we'd like to know if, if you could invite anyone or even maybe just a team member, who would you invite to our fictional rap party to talk to?
2: Oh, man, I could... I mean, I could do a whole party of people. I'd like to.
1: <laughs>
2: Only add one space. Sorry, Joe. I mean, uh, Mark Honey just died and I always wanted to meet him i had a great story friend told me about him my friend was a music supervisor and some time it turns out more only came to the united states i believe one time and and it must have been that one time but he came to a screening of a film and that he was going to be doing the score to, and he came with two young people young woman and a young man italians and my friend's like what is the deal here like what is the relationship or what what's going on and They sat behind him, and the film rolled, and whenever a woman spoke, the young girl translated into Italian. Whenever a man spoke, the young man whispered in his ear, and I just thought that was so beautifully poetic. (laughs) (laughs) But I love his music. So it would just be, uh, you know, ciao, ennio, blah, 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 (laughs) have a drink with him. That would be a dream.
1: Hopefully, he'll have that young man on his,
2: uh, on his shoulder <laughs> to <laughs> interpret. tell him that.
0: <laughs> Joe Beanie, thank you so much for joining us at the rap party.
2: Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank Let's you. do it again sometime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wow, that was such an amazing conversation. Thanks so much to Joe Beanie for joining us at the ramp party. He
0: was brilliant, wasn't he? Also, I love that he is still a little bit unsure about that CCTV scene where we were just so like, it's an incredible scene. He's like, I'm still, I still don't know. But I love that he was being honest about his insecurities, which after so many years in the business, there's something quite humbling and quite sweet about that. So you got to deep dive on <laughs> Werner Herzog. How is that for you, Michael? I mean, would it
1: surprise you to find out that was my highlight of the conversation? <laughs> Just because those films are so wild, Bad Lieutenant in particular. Uh-huh is a film that just feels like they're grabbing things out of the air and putting it in. So learning that the iguana scene (laughs) was so spontaneous and he just had to roll with it. that a really satisfying view. Oh, gosh, yeah. But also it becomes so academic and you don't know how much it is just the realm of fans and critics who go on about how Herzog's fictional films are more true to life than his Mm. documentaries. And to hear the actual editor go along on that journey and discuss that with us was really something. And, you know, as Werner Herzog says... uh, Facts do not convey truth.
0: Oh, come on. Do it in the accent. The
1: problem is he's too close to Arnold Schwarzenegger for me. Do it. Do it. Facts do not convey truth.
0: Yeah, you're right, that was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah,
1: not really <laughs> I'll get better, I'm sure. But yes, we talked about a lot in that conversation, so here's the reading list or viewing list if you'd like to catch up. You Never Really Hear, Grizzly Man and Into the Abyss are currently available to watch on Prime Video.
0: In the show notes of this episode, you can find links to watch all of those as well as other things that Joe worked on, like Andrea Arnold's Amazing American Honey, Lynne Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin, if you want to really depress yourself, or more of Werner Herzog's work like Band- lieutenant port of call new orleans salt and fire and queen of the desert i'm assuming you're going to be doing that michael
1: well, who says I haven't already? <laughs>
0: I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have.
1: And if you're curious about Juliette Welfling, the editor that Joe said he admired, she edited A Prophet and The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, and she also edited Ocean's 8, which is available on Prime Video.
0: And true to being an editor, Joe has come in right at the end here to perfect and complete our rap party. What a fantastic final guest to get in.
1: Yes, well, but I was hoping he'd bring Werner along for the ride. <laughs> Rap Party with Prime Video is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video.
0: The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader.
1: It is produced by Annie Hughes, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with additional research from Nicole Davis.
0: Our original music is by Axel Cacoutier.
1: We're edited by Content is Queen.
0: And our artwork is by Sandra Boucher.
1: If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening and we'll see you at the party.